Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 61. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about decolonizing the Museum of Us. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Kara Vetter and Eva Trujillo on the show. Kara Vetter is the Director of Cultural Resources at the Museum of Us in San Diego, California, located on the unceded ancestral homelands of the Kumeyaay Nation. In collaboration with Indigenous stakeholders and museum leadership, Kara supports the development of the museum's decolonizing initiatives within the Cultural Resources Department through culturally sensitive care practices, protocols, and policies that prioritize Indigenous sovereignty and traditional knowledge. Currently, Kara sits on the board of the Association of Registrars and Collection Specialists and is part of the Enrich Cultural Institutions Network and the Indigenous Collections Care Working Group. So welcome to the show, Kara. Hi, this is Kara. Thank you so much for having me. My pronouns are she, her. Perfect. All right. And then we also have Eva Trujillo on the show. Eva Trujillo is a Sin Ipe from the Mesa Grande Band of Mission Indians Reservation. Eva's devotion to the sustainability of indigenous traditional knowledge, language, and culture has always been her driving force. Her current role as the UCSD's repatriation coordinator allows her to build equitable and collaborative partnerships with various indigenous communities across the U.S., to repatriate and return ancestors and cultural resources back to their home communities. Eva currently resides, works, and thrives within her traditional ancestral territory. So welcome to the show, Eva. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so in this episode, we are going to dive into the work that the Museum of Us has been doing on decolonization. But before we get there, I just wanted to make sure that our listeners get a little bit of a sense of Kara and Eva. So could both of you tell a little bit about what got you interested in this type of work? What got me into this type of work is um, my community has several committees that we sit on. So through my community's involvement and the partnerships that the museum uh, was trying to build and is currently building, um, we formed a relationship and I soon actually went to work for the museum. So through through um, my community and the relationships that were being built, that's how I got to the museum and that's how it kicked off my interest and wanting to do a complete career change into anthropology. So what were you working in before? Just curious. I was working at UCSD Medical Center. Oh. So I was in nursing. Yeah, so I was in the medical field. (laughs) That's awesome. It was a complete career change. Yeah. Yeah. 
me? Is it my yes. turn? <laughs> awesome. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to step. I want to give pause. Um, so I've thought a lot about that particular question, and what I've come to realize is that honestly, I think the work found me, um, rather than me finding the work. I've I've always loved museums. I've always loved history. I've always been a nerd about museums and, and a registrar at heart. Um, anyone who knows me knows I'm a kind of an organizational freak. So, so those skill sets lend themselves really handily to, to museum work, but it was coming to this institution to be their registrar almost seven years ago, my how time flies, that and, and the work that we began undertaking a little bit before I began and started in my, in my role where I really found my voice as, as someone who can support decolonizing initiatives and someone who can use my own personal experiences as a, as a mixed black woman to be an ally where I can. So that's kind of how I kind of got interested into the work is that it, it found me. <laughs> and, and I don't think I would, I, I would change a thing about how, how it came to me in that way. And I welcome it. Yeah. So We've, we've done an intro of the two of you, but I suppose we should probably do an intro of the museum, too. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. So the museum is 100 years old. We were built as part of the Panama, California Exposition in 1915, which was all about, you know, exploration and, and new trades through the Panama Canal. It, it was meant to be a draw and like this huge, look at San Diego, we are a city. Look at us, we are metropolitan, we are cosmopolitan. And this it was part of this whole World's Fair Expo um, thing that was a really big deal in the late, you know, 19th and early 20th centuries. We began and our, our building was built, purpose-built to be part of the exposition. We have had collections ever since the very founding of the institution. A lot of the cultural resources that, not a lot, but a, a good significant portion of the cultural resources we hold now are from that 1915 founding, those, those expeditions to Peru by Alice Herlishka, the physical anthropologist from the Smithsonian for Peruvian ancestral remains the gathering of cultural resources from a variety of different indigenous communities across the Americas. And, and we then kind of took that next level of just continuing to collect after the expo was over and after we became an official museum. We've changed our name a few times over the years, and, and we just continued to, to collect and collect and collect. At this point, we now have kind of a foothold or a footprint of about 75,000 ethnographic items, about... 7,500 ancestral remains. A lot of them are international indigenous, specifically from Peru or from, from India through medical study collections, but there's also Native American ancestral remains that we're working to repatriate through NACPRA. And then, you know, we are represented by over, I want to say about 150 indigenous communities and more than 200 indigenous communities worldwide. And, and our, our institutional focus in collecting had always been a primarily around indigenous communities. And so that's why we kind of have this focus right now on working through an, an indigenous traditional knowledge and sovereignty lens is, is kind of where we're at. That's, a, that's the, the small and short of it, tall and short of it. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk about the history of the decolonization process that you guys have been working on in the museum. 
So yeah, um, it's been a long and quite deliberate process. It's not something that we, we, you know, just jumped into overnight with, you know, full knowledge of what, what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go. It's been an, an evolution to say the least. And, it, and it's something that's going to go on for decades. You know, it took us a hundred years to get to this point and it'll take us several years to work towards undoing some of the harm that we have caused through our collecting practices, through our, you know, educational programming, through our very existence as an, as an institution um, within the colonial imperial United States, and also physically where we set within the unceded homelands of the Kumeyaay Nation. And actually, I was recently reminded that our decolonizing process actually began when we took on this exhibit called Race, Are We So Different? We hosted this exhibit when it was traveling several years ago, and then officially took it on as a permanent installation in 2015, so right before I started with the museum. And this exhibit critically examines the origins of race and racism and how they're actually social constructs that have that used science in some areas to legitimize the use of race in our everyday lives from determining, you know, who could drink at what fountain to who you could marry and so on and so forth. And this exhibit is intended to help us understand how we deal with race and how we deal with it in a positive and a more deeply reflective way. And so once we brought that exhibit on in, a, in its current permanent capacity, it was kind of difficult not to see how our other exhibits and some of our other practices needed to be examined more closely through that, you know, kind of lens. And so we started doing some research. Some of our staff, former staff now, but we're still working with them, started doing research into, you know, I hate to say the term best practices, but better practices, including, you know, diversity, equity, access and inclusion work, decolonizing work. We started talking with other institutions that were more like minded, like the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine and others. And then just other like thinkers in, in the field of museums and adjacent fields. And we realized that our institution, we had to start to actively decolonize if we wanted to move forward as a better, more equitable institution. And so we had to learn to become comfortable with our history and to acknowledge that we and the larger museum field has caused you know, immeasurable harm to the communities that they engage with, be they indigenous, black, LGBTQIA, uh, disabled, and so forth. And we recognize now that museums for many of these communities are sites of harm and erasure. And, and how do we address that? And so we're an anthropology museum. We're a cultural anthropology museum now. And we recognize that most of what our focus historically has been, has been on indigenous communities. And this focus has been, you know, through some very frankly outdated and harmful exhibits, programming, educational courses, even active scientific research that focused on these communities as quote unquote peoples of the past, rather than the contemporary and thriving communities of the present that they are. And that's not to say that we didn't have current exhibits with current artisans, current you know thought leaders in, in, in these communities. But by and large, most of our historical exhibits have been about these people as peoples of the past, as cabinets of curiosity. And so in order to move beyond that, 
really harmful way of operating, that kind of dehumanizing way of operating. We needed to do realized that we needed to do some deeper reparative work within the communities. And for us, where we're situated at, the best place was to start with our home indigenous community, the Kumeyaay Nation, as well as other communities within the SoCal region. And so in beginning the decall work, we say decall or DI work, it really started with, for us, with a reassessment of our work under federal NAGPRA law, because it is a law, it has regulations, it has legs to it. It's something that we can look to because it, it's, while it has many flaws, it has a, a, a deep intent to do the right thing. And so we began to follow the intent of the law, which is means we needed to start actively working with the community, listening to them, listening to their demands, because they had been asking and demanding for repatriation of their ancestors and belongings for decades from us and from other institutions across the nation. And it was through this process of seeding our presumed authority and having a more honest and collaborative consultation, conversation, owning up to when we were wrong, um, it, you know, being transparent about what we're doing and when we're doing it and how we're doing and asking for guidance and how we need to move forward with the community. We saw how transformative this work can be for everyone involved. And it's not easy and it takes time and perseverance and planning, a lot of P words, but it's important to do. And when you do it the right way, some really beautiful things can happen. Eva, do you have anything that you want to add to that? So like Kara said, I think that the history started by kind of a reflection of certain past actions on museum staff and realizing how inequitable it really was. I think that step back and, you know, just to kind of reflect of the harm that was brought on the communities and how their voices were never heard was kind of a starting point, too. In order to, to move, we, we then acknowledged and, you know, wanted to take accountability for our actions. So it really did start with, like I said, reflection and reevaluating what what our goals were and how we've treated the community. Yeah, and you guys have laid out, both of you mentioned the the harm that, that the museum had done in the past. And um, you guys have this great document, the Colonial Pathways Policy, that really lays a lot of that out. And I don't want to necessarily go too deep into the the harm aspect, because I know that can be really hard for people to listen to. Um, but I do think it is important the way that you laid it out. And uh, I think it could be helpful to other museums to really be able to have that same amount of reflection for themselves. So if you wouldn't mind um, super briefly laying out some of the ways that that you guys talked about that you felt like the museum had done harm in the past? Sure. The museum is founded in, you know, the colonial endeavor. The museum field in a, as a whole is, is part of the colonial endeavor. We've supported colonialism through a variety of, through a variety of ways. 
in particular for our institution, it was about the ways in which we collected and supported collecting uh, cultural resources. It was about also how we designated who could have access to cultural resources and the research that was created from that access. Our institution was really centered in a more Euro-American mindset around scientific discovery and research. And so a lot of the information that we benefited from by, by allowing researchers and having our, and doing our own research, not only on ethnographic cultural resources, but on ancestral remains is just one way in which we have caused harm to communities. And through review of the different, we call them colonial pathways in which cultural resources came into our, our stewardship and our care is, is how we have determined kind of like what makes a pathway. And, and, and a colonial pathway may be different for different institutions. It's highly um, customized to our institution. So I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Eva? Yeah, I, I think um, I think with each institution, you know, historically, a lot of them are built off this colonial construct. And therefore, it's very easy to carry on and be complacent. So I think each institution can benefit by looking back at their history and our history is not a pretty one. It is, it, it's, it's, it's awful, you know, I'm, and I'm being blunt, but it, 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 it's really that colonial legacy. And so I think when you get in the right people that want to do work and um, decolonize and start treating indigenous communities, you know, like human beings, <laughs> it's there can be really great results. So I, I, I think the first place, you know, is it I think an institution really needs to acknowledge what, what they've done and they're they're gonna wanna need to move away from that. Is that the direction that they really want to go? When you're faced with a reality of an institution that has this you know, poor history with indigenous communities and, and, and other com communities also, I think it's important to realize that you have to acknowledge that before you can move on and start doing really great work, but the one has to be there. And then um, a lot of institutions want to do the work, but they just don't know how to get there. And so I, obviously that process is kind of hard, so, but it's doable. It's absolutely doable. And that's the thing that kind of keeps you moving and going that other institutions are doing this too. And, and you, there's a great feeling that goes along with it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we're already at our first break point, which is crazy. But when we come back, we'll we'll start to dive into the process of uh, the decolonizing work that you've been doing at the museum. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we're back after our break. And now I want to, we talked about the importance, the first step of the museums really reckoning with the harm and colonial past of their institutions. After, after that step, what was the next step in the process for you guys um, to work towards your decolonizing efforts? So one of our next steps was, you know, once we started looking internally, compiling case studies around the different ways in which cultural resources came into our institution and, and the other ways in which we needed to, to do better and be better and, and, and beyond just honoring and listening is action. You have to take demonstrable steps to, to make change happen because you can talk all you want. If you don't back it up with real action, then it's just words. So for us, it was small baby steps in some cases. It was changing some of our organizational language about how we refer to cultural resources, how we refer to different areas of our storage spaces. So for example, we used to call cultural resources things or artifacts. And those words in and of themselves are fairly innocuous, but it's the way in which they were relayed. It was dehumanizing to not only the, the cultural resources, but also the ancestral remains and to the communities and the creators and the makers of these cultural resources. And so by changing some of our language around that, instead of saying specimens, we say ancestral remains. It is rehumanizing and acknowledging that these people are people and are deserving of respect. And when you start to see people as people and give them the respect that they deserve, you start to realize there are other areas that you can continue to make demonstrable change. So for, for us, words have power. And so changing our language was incredibly important. And then also beginning to do more walking of our talk, applying for grants to help support our, you know, funding the efforts in order to walk that talk with the Kumeyaay community and with other communities that are focused on consultation and stewardship and what do access policies look like? What does repatriation look like both within the bounds of NAGPRA and outside of the bounds of NAGPRA? So a variety of different action points that then push the, the work further and then creating internal working groups with our staff and board and indigenous community members to kind of go over the policies that we're trying to create. It's a little bit like building the plane while you're flying it a little bit in some regards. But um, but it's well worth the effort. Yeah, I mean, like Kara said, we, you know, we started taking these actions and we knew we didn't want to just say that we we're going to change and then not reflect that and not infuse that that want into into everything. It, policy, like 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 Kara said, we, we even looked at our policy and realized, you know, our policy can be oppressive in, in some ways. So we really did try to 
change. We really did try to change the whole environment. Even with the staff, we started incorporating more um, consultation with the communities and asking what their wants and needs were. So really, we, we wanted to involve them in, in, in these steps of change. And, you know, a lot of institutions will start with a land acknowledgement and they write this really great land acknowledgement, but yet they don't consult with the communities and they make all these wonderful statements, but yet there's still a bit of hypocrisy surrounding it. So then land acknowledgements become very performative. So it really requires these actions and involving the whole institution and and even having board members in agreement with, with, with what this mission is. And, and it helps when the whole museum is really willing to step forward and uh, put in the effort because it's hard work. It's not easy work. You know, we're breaking away from this colonial construct and it, it, it it's, it's hard. It's not easy work. You know, it doesn't come easy. It takes a lot of resources, takes a lot of time, but you know, it can be done. It, it really can be done. And if the want is there, then you really do try to strive for um, change and reevaluate where can we change. And it doesn't have to be one big change overnight. I mean, this takes years to do. So, yeah. I'd also like to add that we're not just coming up with these ideas, you know, out of the blue. Like the ideas about, you know, true transformational change are coming from indigenous scholars, from community leaders. I know we have our um, four guiding principles around decolonizing initiatives that are based in Dr. Amy Lone Tree's work, Decolonizing Museums. And in that uh, work, she really laid out what at least the initial steps that institutions need to take in order to begin the path of decolonizing. And if you're not willing to at least start down those different guiding principles, you're not really doing so in a way that is true and in a way that will actually yield positive results later down the way. You're setting yourself up for failure. So you kind of, you really do need to utilize and incorporate indigenous knowledge and indigenous scholarship in this area in order to move forward. Otherwise, you're just replicating a colonial harm. Yeah, can you explain really quick what those four guiding principles are in general and, and how the museum is incorporating those? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to be quick. Um, so the first principle is around tooth. Yeah, I know. Uh, the first principle is around uh, truth telling and accountability. It's about actively practicing truth telling about our colonial legacies and the ways that we've replicated colonial practice and thought. It's about also another guiding principle is about rethinking ownership. That means we are honoring indigenous ownership to their material culture and intellectual property. So we're taking into consideration both tangible and intangible concepts of ownership. We're also looking at a third principle, which is an organizational cultural shift that is supported by both systems and policy and practice. So we talked a little bit about it before, how we were changing our language, changing some of our practices, writing new policies, like we have a policy on the curation of 
human remains. There is a colonial pathways policy. There's also strategic planning that will set us up for the next, you know, five or six years down the down the road. And then lastly, there is indigenous representation and inclusion. This is recognizing and honoring indigenous authority and then trying to truly incorporate indigenous representation at all levels of the decision-making process within our institution, both at the staff level, the board level, the community collaborative level, at all levels. That's, that's, those are the four basic ones that we're working with. And then there's a fifth one that we've begun to incorporate, which is around reciprocity. That is where we are sharing this information in the same spirit from which it was shared with us, only with indigenous consent. So we recognize that we don't own indigenous knowledge and therefore we should not be sharing it out or asking for it. Essentially, we should only be accepting what is given to us and then we are not sharing that knowledge out without the community's permission. So that's that's another big one. Eva, I want to give you a chance in case you want to say anything. Otherwise, I'll I'll, I'll jump in with the next question. No, you know what? I, Kara said it perfectly. Thank awesome. you. <laughs> Okay. So uh, can you, can you talk about, uh, like, give some examples of some of the work, some of the specific work that you're doing in order to achieve these goals? Yeah. Um, I've got some, but Eva, I feel like I talk a lot. Did you want to speak about anything in particular? Um, yeah. So I think that truth telling and accountability as far as the museum goes is, is we really do kind of put it out there that we have been and treated uh, Native communities poorly. And we, we talk about that. We, we, we talk about that quite often. And in fact, we give apologies to, to communities um, because we do want to acknowledge the truth and we want to be held accountable for that. We want to participate in transparency with community with communities too we do want to let them know you know about their cultural resources um what's transpired from the day it got there until you know 2021 so we try to be very honest and 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 let them know they deserve that so that's that's one of the things that we do. We you know we do a public apology whenever we meet with the communities. So it, it, it's the least we can do at that point. And then we rethink about ownership. And Kara had mentioned about verbiage. We really did try to change that verbiage. And we don't think of this as ours. We think of it, and we word it by saying these are your cultural resources. We acknowledge that. And so um, a lot of institutions will, you know, kind of get this weird kind of ownership over a collection, you know, and are guarded by it. And they think, oh, we're going to lose this, you know. But truly, our actions are showing that. And the words that we are using is that these cultural resources are just that. They are resources for a specific culture. So that is some of the some of those actions that we try to try to do when we're applying these principles. So Karen, is there anything you want to add? Yeah. Also, this is falls more under the realm of indigenous representation and inclusion. 
we are actively working with a diff- different communities on more publicly facing, forward facing aspects of our in- of the museum, so specifically within our exhibits. So right now we are actively working under an Institute for Museum and Library Services grant that supports the creation of content for a new Kumeyaay exhibit that is by the Kumeyaay for the Kumeyaay. It is a the second grant in this series that we are undertaking, and it is something that we are working through right now. And the purpose of that grant is to create the content for this new exhibit. So we're really excited to continue our relationship working with the Kumeyaay Nation and their leadership in that. And then also we're working with uh, Mayan community members, some of who are part of the Mayan diaspora to review and create new content for our outdated and frankly offensive Mayan exhibit. It was a really old exhibit that we have outgrown as an institution and it is not reflective at all of the vibrant and thriving contemporary Mayan community that exists today, both within their homeland and the diaspora. So we are really excited to be working under a separate grant that is allowing us to be able to pay for these community consultants to provide their knowledge, to share with us what they think is pertinent, to guide us in determining what needs to be put on display, what needs to be taken off, and to to really, again, guide the process through which we are determining how this exhibit is going to, to look and feel. We're really excited for where we're going with it and really excited to be making new friends and making these new connections within the community. That was one thing that I, I wanted to ask about too is you mentioned NAGPRA and indigenous communities in the U.S. And then you've also mentioned that you're also, you also have collections from indigenous communities from across the world So could you talk a little bit about how you've applied this maybe the same or differently between the U.S. and the international indigenous communities? Yeah, sure. For us here in the U.S., NAGPRA is the floor, not the ceiling. That's something that we say pretty regularly. But it does, for all its faults and issues, provide at least a decent framework with which to think about international repatriation, international consultation. There's a lot of good within that that policy that allows us to kind of build up from there. And so for us, repatriation should not just be only beholden to U.S. domestic communities. It, It should be to everyone everywhere because that is our, the footprint of our holdings of what we, what we steward. And so for us, the creation of the Colonial Pathways policy was really a reflection of trying to navigate how can we repatriate when there are no laws, there are no treaties, you know, internationally speaking, that 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 talk about repatriation like NAGPRA does. So, so for us, our Colonial Pathways policy really lays out how we curate, how we accession, how we repatriate cultural resources, and then how, how, we, how we have conversations and, and what a colonial pathway is and how different cultural resources may have left these different international communities and made it to U.S. shores, essentially. Mm-hmm. And does that apply to non-Indigenous communities, too, that you have collections from? 
We do have some non-Indigenous community collections. So we've got some English items. I think there's maybe one Swedish item, a flag running around. <laughs> and so we, we need to take a look. <laughs> I've seen it. We, we need to take a look at what that means. And if there is a non-Indigenous community that wants to have a conversation about cultural resources that we hold that is from their community, I think it can apply. But the lion's share of the work that we have to do is with the Indigenous communities who have not had a voice in this process for decades, nigh on hundreds of years. And so really our focus is on them because of that is where our, our footprint lies. But we are open to having those conversations should they arise. All right. Well, on that note, we are already at our second break point. But when we come back, I have lots and lots more questions about this decolonizing process. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we're back from our break. And I loved this concept that you talked about of Nagpur being the floor, not the ceiling. So could you talk a little bit more about what that, that means to you guys? Sure. I think that NAGPRA is a law, so it's required. It's, it's a federal law, and it's required. There's also a state law that says that we have to participate in NAGPRA. And it's the floor because it is the basics. It, it is, it, NAGPRA can sometimes treat a community like a business transaction, and that's not what we want to do. Our focus is solely to collaborate with communities, and our aim is to get their ancestors home. That is our focus. That's what we want to do. So we do go above and beyond what NAGPRA stipulates. In, in, in doing so, our process, our process is really truly involving the community at each step from the beginning to the end. The community gets to dictate definitions. They are the ones telling us what their sacred objects are, what their items of cultural patrimony are, and incorporating their voices in in spaces where they've not been able to do that is, is, is one of the first steps to a successful repatriation. They feel as if they're heard and they should be heard. So, you know, we really do try to go above and beyond just what NACPRA stipulates. We really do want the experience to be as painless as possible. As we stated before, you know, our, our museum really has caused a lot of harm and it, it's affected many, many communities, and we acknowledge that. So however we can ease 
the NAGPRA process is, is, is what we want to do. And like I said, just listening to them, traditional knowledge is amazing and it is valid. It is a valid, it's a valid thing. Like I said, their voices have been ignored. And the ironic thing is, you know, this is anthropology. It's in the realm of anthropology, which is the study of human beings. And yet we, we've treated um, Native communities subpar, you know. So we really do try to take them through the NAGPRA process and listen to them, listen to what they have to say. Yeah, so in, in retrospect, looking back at all of these decolonizing efforts that you guys have been doing through the Museum of Us. You know, obviously it's a learning process. Nobody gets it right the first time. Are there things that that you would have done differently if you were starting right now? I can take that one. Uh, (laughs) I think honestly is recognizing that decolonizing initiatives work or any work where you are working with indigenous communities or, or other communities, it takes a lot of time to do it right. And that time, specifically the passage of it through certain colonial constructs, is quite limiting and can be harmful. So this tended to show up more when we were, say, working on either larger scale grants or there are tighter deadlines or specific deliverables that are tied to funding sometimes. But sometimes those deadlines, though they are planned, are still somewhat arbitrary because you're working within a, a time frame that's not necessarily your own to control when, you know, you're not the one in charge of purse string sometimes. So it meant we had to put harder boundaries on time spent on projects with communities. So As a result of this, it's been a learning curve. We're learning and working to build more expansive and open-ended timelines within not only the granting grant work that we do, but also just the projects that we undertake outside of grant work and really trying to push ourselves to, A1, make sure that we are building in enough time that the community has time to consult, to go back and have conversations amongst themselves, to come back to us, to make sure that there is time for a give and take. People always want to put a a limit on, well, how long is this going to take? And honestly, the answer is don't know. And we need to be more okay with not knowing exactly how long something is going to take. I think it took us a hundred years to get to this point. It could take another hundred years. Who knows? Hopefully not. Hopefully we can get through things a little bit more quickly and expediently. But the point is, is that when you take the time to build the relationship the right way, it is less likely to become forced or um, for people to feel like they're not being heard. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like any anything that you're doing right, there's always things that you would do differently the next time around. But these are these are some pretty major efforts that you guys have talked about. And just looking at all of the documentation that you guys have done so far, there's just clearly been a lot of work and a lot of putting your money where your mouth is. So what do you think has made it possible for the Museum of Us to pursue such a big change where so many other museums have struggled to be able to do that. I mean, obviously you might have a curator or even the board or 
people in general in a museum interested in doing this kind of work, but a lot of times it just doesn't happen at the, the scale that you guys are pursuing. So what do you think has made it successful for you guys to be able to do this type of work? I, I think, you know, number one is the support from, from everybody and the teamwork that it takes because one person can't do it all. So it, it helps if an institution has that support throughout, you know, from the very top to the very bottom of, of, of employees. So, I mean, these are challenges that every institution faces. A lot of times they want to do the work and it's, it's more about resources and money. You know, grants can be helpful throughout this work. But, I mean, there's, there's a couple different ways to, to go about it. But it, it really needs to be an institution as a whole. And like I said, it, like, like you had mentioned, it's very hard when you only have one or two people wanting to do this work. But one or two people can make a change. And hopefully it, it becomes contagious, you know, and inspirational. Because when you make these changes, you really do, you really do a lot for the community to to bring bring them to an equitable type of relationship so i think this work can ages and can continue even if you have one or two people on board you know yeah i think looking out to we at the at the museum we you know we've reached out to museums and since and have asked, what are you guys doing? We, this is our plan. This is what we want to do. How did you do it? You know, so it's nice to have partners that can help guide action, you know, at an institution. So I, I encourage people to reach out to, to other institutions who are doing this work because in that you have, you know, you have an ally. So that, that can be very, very helpful. I would also say that we wanted to make sure that we were having lots of touch points and conversations with not only our board who, you know, you have to have complete buy-in from the before board, excuse me, you have to have complete buy-in from the board before you can really do anything major, you know, so having a lot of conversations with the board, having facilitated trainings with staff and the board, sometimes together, sometimes separate has been incredibly helpful and then having even more conversations. There's a lot of talking, a lot of sharing our feelings at every step of the way in order to make sure that we are all rowing in the same direction, as it were. So it sounds like both of you touched on this, but I'm curious if you have anything that you want to add. If another museum or somebody that works at another museum was looking to do something similar, what advice would you give them? I think one thing is is thinking about what is your support level from your institution. Do you have buy-in from leadership or or do you or is it just you if you're a small institution or if you're a large institution and it's just you? Thinking about starting small and working with what you can control that can be used to build up your decolonizing initiatives practice. I'm thinking of how you can support community-driven consultations within the NAGPRA process in particular and looking to kind of change how 
you yourself operate within that practice. So I know that in particular, like NACPRA law, it gives museums a great deal of power in determining what can be affiliated, what is NAGPRA eligible. Museums have the final determination in many cases. But within our institution, it's about ceding that authority and letting the communities determine what is eligible and what is not. So that's a practice that can be started, you know, within your own NAGPRA journey is one thing. And then also thinking about being as simple as changing some of your handling and care practices when you're working with cultural resources to be more inclusive of indigenous traditional knowledge. That is something that you don't necessarily need permission from your leadership to do, one would hope, because you are within the scope of your position providing care. And if that is your job, you are providing appropriate care. And then keeping track of what it is you're doing, why it is you're doing it, to help build a case for why it's important for your institution to take further steps down this road. If you're already doing it, it's easier to keep going with small steps than trying to say, change the entire institution overnight. That never works. <laughs> so, so, but taking small bites out of that very large elephant is, 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 tends to be a good way to go for institutions, I think, and for people who want to do good work. Yeah, I think, um, some bit of advice for other institutions that I would say is that you have to be patient within this transitional period. Like Kara said, it's, this is not work that's going to happen overnight. I mean, this is going to take years, so pace yourself. But it, it's great to have other examples, you know, try not to reinvent the wheel. If other institutions are doing it, maybe you can implement it and ask their advice of what they did. Because we, when we did our work, we really just broke everything down and, and reevaluated. So it was very pivotal. And we've recognized that not every institution can start that way. And it has to be in little increments and slowly building. But overall, I mean, you have to practice being patient with this process. You know, it, it can be very frustrating work, but very, very uh, rewarding in the long run because you know what you've done and the change is, is ethical and equitable. So, okay, I'm going to spring one on you. Let's say you're imagining, you know, 5, 10, 15, however many years down the road. Best case scenario, you know, dream vision. What is the museum? Like, what are you seeing in that dream vision for the museum? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> Hopefully lots of rainbows. Sorry, that was that was flippant. I apologize. <laughs> I would hope to see this is the nerd in me talking because I'm a bit of a techno nerd as well around how can we incorporate digital technologies, both current and yet to be determined into how we make cultural resources accessible in this work, because as I, as I said, as Eva has said, this is the work of generations, to be completely honest. And so we need to make sure that what we're doing now is building towards a future where, you know, communities can reach out to us and we can easily share with them, you know, what we hold 
and have a conversation with them and, and not have to worry, have we found everything that might belong to this community? So having some online databases that are accessible only to communities, having transparency around where we are at in the process. So kind of having um, some metrics and tables, data, charts and graphs that tell where we are in the decolonizing process, where we are in the repatriation process, I think is something that I really look forward to because it holds us accountable, not only to the public at large, but more importantly to the communities that we're trying to engage with. That's kind of where, where my brain goes, at least from a, a super nerdy technical aspect. For me, I'm totally going to reach for the stars here and I'm going to be a total dreamer here, but if it, you know, so many years, maybe 15 years, I would love to see the museum re have repatriated everything that they want to repatriate that goes uh, beyond the U.S. So that would be my perfect world reaching for the stars situation. I think, you know, we have ancestors that are suffering and waiting to go home. And we have communities that are suffering and waiting for their ancestors. So in a perfect world, I would have all the ancestors repatriated. But, you know, maybe not 15 years, but <laughs> one day I, I have hope that the museum will get there. I, I really do. And I have a lot of confidence. Well, I think that is a beautiful note to end on. So thanks you Thank you, both of you, for coming on the show. And just to note that the, the Museum of Us does accept donations. So if you're so inclined and want to support this work, uh, you can go and donate through their website. And yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your journey with us. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Max Lander. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. 
Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Come.